Thanks, John. I missed my cue a second ago. (laughs) I am a huge fan of the British sci-fi TV show, Doctor Who. It's about a regenerating alien with two hearts from the planet Gallifrey who travels through time and space, saving the day. The doctor's space vessel, the TARDIS, looks like a 1960s police call box. Picture the classic London red phone booth, but blue, like dark blue, and with wooden sides instead of glass windows. You can't see inside it. The doctor has had a series of human companions traveling together with the doctor over the years in the many seasons of the show. And it's a running joke that as each one steps inside, they look around with wonder and they say, it's bigger on the inside because it is. People step in expecting it to be phone booth sized, a small box, but they actually walk into a massive spaceship control room. It has hallways leading off multiple directions that lead to bedrooms and wardrobes and even a pool. And the new companion often steps outside and checks the outside dimensions again and then steps in and says, it's bigger on the inside. It's bigger on the inside. It's bigger on the inside. Or even it's smaller on the outside. When I went to seminary, I felt like I had a TARDIS experience with the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I grew up in church and like many Americans exposed to cultural Christianity and gospel crusades, the four spiritual laws, I thought that the gospel was a message of individual salvation, meaning having my personal sins forgiven and going to heaven when I died. And along with that, I thought that John 3.16, which I memorized as a kid, was Jesus' mission. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. I thought that was the gospel, and that was Jesus' mission, to die and save us from our sins and that we'd have eternal life. But I realized one day that his mission is not limited to John 3.16. His mission and the meaning of salvation is better encompassed by Luke 4, 14 through 21, our gospel text for tonight. The gospel is bigger on the inside. It's bigger on the inside. The good news is not just a one-way ticket to heaven. The good news is all-encompassing health and freedom now in this life and in the life to come. It's good news for the poor. It is release to the captives or the prisoners. It is sight for the blind. It's freedom and liberation to the oppressed. And it's the year of the Lord's favor. The gospel doesn't look like I thought it did. It's not as small as I thought it was. I mean, yes, sin forgiveness and eternal life is big, but yet it's even bigger than that. And Jesus' original audience seemed to think similarly as well. They were expecting a particular form of salvation in the shape of a victorious king who would solve the Roman problem. But this short young man who grew up down the street, he was smaller on the outside. This isn't what they were looking for. Tonight, I invite you to step inside the gospel with me and see how much bigger it is on the inside. Jesus' mission is bigger for us. The best summary word I can think of is holistic. It means more than sins forgiven and eternal life in a distant spiritual heaven. It means a recreation of the world as we experience it now 
and participating in that world change. And it means God's ultimate recreation of the new heaven and the new earth in the future. So it's bigger for us, but it's also bigger for others. Salvation is for people we don't like. Salvation is for people we think God should not forgive and save. I want to reread the gospel passage for tonight in the Common English Bible translation and read the verses after it as well. When we're trying to interpret the Bible, one of the most important tasks is looking at the verses in their context. How does this set of verses fit in the larger paragraph, the larger section of the narrative or teaching unit, the whole book of the Bible, and then the Bible as a whole? And then in salvation history. So we, we have these growing circles of context that we want to look at. So let's look at this pericope as a whole. And a note on that word pericope. My husband was proofing my dissertation proposal on this passage, and he said, you spelled periscope wrong. And I shared with him what I myself had to learn in seminary. It's not a periscope. It's not a pericope. It's a pericope, a smaller complete unit of the biblical text. And this pericope goes um, from verse 14 all the way to verse 30. So we stopped at verse 21, but I want to give you some larger context as well. And as we explore how big Jesus' mission is and how big is the salvation that he offers, I want to contextualize this passage in the role it plays in Luke as a whole, and, and then also what Luke pulls into this passage using the Old Testament quotations that Jesus reads here. Then we're also going to look at some cultural aspects of what's going on in this scene, and I want to unpack what Jesus might mean with these specific points of salvation he brings up in his message, both in the quotation and then in the examples he shares in his teaching. And finally, we're going to look at the people's responses to Jesus' message and consider what our response to his mission and message can be today. This story from Luke conveys wonder and also extreme discomfort. Listen for those emotion words. And I like the way that the CEB translates some of those emotion words and the emotional tone of the passage as the narrative develops. And you can open your Bibles to Luke 4 if you want to follow along or sit back and close your eyes and listen and picture this scene. Luke 4, 14 through 30, Jesus announces good news to the poor. Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue as he normally did and stood up to read. The synagogue assistant gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to explain to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. Everyone was raving about Jesus, so impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips. They said, this is Joseph's son, isn't it? Then Jesus said to them, undoubtedly, you will quote the saying to me, doctor, heal, heal yourself. Do you hear in your hometown what we've heard, we heard you did in, in Capernaum? He said, 
I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown. And I can assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time when it didn't rain for three and a half years and there was a great food shortage in the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to a widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, yet none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. Now let's pull apart those layers, those concentric circles of context. In this pericope, what is going on here? Note that at the beginning, Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the spirit. Then he cites Isaiah to say that the spirit is upon him. So we get this thread throughout that his ministry is fueled by and driven by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the people move from wonder and marvel to extreme anger and murderous rage as Jesus explains further who he is and what he's come to do among them. Now, in the Gospel of Luke as a whole, this passage follows after Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. And during that wilderness period, Jesus' calling is confirmed and clarified. He steps out of that period directly into this announcement of his mission and the start of his active ministry period. So Luke 4, 14 through 30, is generally regarded by the commentators as Luke's presentation of Jesus' mission particularly his Galilean ministry. And it's set here near the opening of the gospel as a kind of thesis statement, an outline or a foreshadowing of the work that's going to come. Luke is a very well-organized piece of writing and, and Luke tells you what he's gonna tell you and then he tells you, as you should in a good essay. Jesus' primary mission is proclaiming good news to the poor. That's the first line of the quotation. And the rest of the lines of the Isaiah quotations support and expound on that theme. Jesus will go on to do the things he prophesies about himself in this passage. He's going to heal people. He's going to free them from demonic possession. He's going to feed the hungry. He's going to care about the poor. He's going to bring liberation. Now, this story also Luke uses it to foreshadow what the people's response to Jesus' message will be. Some are going to marvel at him and others are going to reject him. Now, when we look at the Old Testament circle, these quotes are a mashup of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. Luke specifically leaves out the Isaiah 61 quote. He leaves out these lines, bind up the brokenhearted and the day of vengeance of our God. And then he brings in from Isaiah 58, the phrase to set the oppressed free. Now, in these passages in Isaiah, God the liberator is compassionate to the oppressed and angry at the oppressors. So God in those passages is bringing vengeance on false worshipers who uh, seek their own pleasure and show false humility. There's a lot about economic oppression in these passages in Isaiah, which really highlights what Jesus is saying here about bringing good news to the poor not the spiritually poor. Luke likes to bring out the theme of the actual tangible, physically poor people. Like in, in Luke's telling of the Beatitudes, it's different from Matthew's. In Matthew's telling, um, it talks about the poor in spirit, but Luke speaks of 
simply the poor. So again, here, Luke is emphasizing the actual poor. Now, Jesus himself probably grew up in poverty. So he likely heard these passages all his life from the prophets. And I think that he probably felt bolstered by God's compassion on the poor, like his family and others in their situation. So he carries that compassion into his ministry. Now, if we look at the context of the culture, uh, one interesting note is that in the synagogues, it was typical to stand to read, but to sit to teach. In churches, we very often stand to teach, but in the Jewish context, they sat to teach. And when I was, uh, when I lived in Maastricht in the Netherlands, I used to go with a Jewish friend to visit the synagogue and they still practiced that tradition. They would have someone come and unroll the scrolls on a big, a big table altar and they would stand to read. And then the rabbi would sit down to teach and explain what had been read. And so that's, what's going on here. So when Jesus sits down, he's not done. He's sitting to begin. He's sitting to assume the position of authoritative teaching. Uh, and people are, are wondering, who is this? This is our hometown boy. Who does he think he is? And it's also important to note that there was general disdain for the Gentiles, which comes into play in a moment. So to reiterate, salvation is bigger than we might think. Again, it's bigger for us and it's bigger for others. So I want to draw out more from these lines of the prophecy to show how salvation is bigger for us. And then I want to draw out what Jesus teaches about the Gentiles and the people's reaction to show how salvation is bigger for others. What does salvation mean for us? Is this salvation spiritual? Is it practical or is it holistic? Did Jesus' pronouncement mean physical healing and freeing, or are these just metaphors for a spiritual salvation without any care for the human body? Now, commentators used to entirely spiritualize the issue. So if you read commentaries from the 70s and 80s, it talks about a spiritual salvation. But others, especially recently, are seeing there's both spiritual and physical healing and deliverance in mind in this passage. So who are the poor? Who is Jesus sent to? Is this just economically disadvantaged people? No, the designation poor is really shorthand. It stands for people with a list of troubles. That could include uh, possession by evil spirits, disabilities, chronic illnesses, mental illnesses, financial destitution, certainly, but also people lacking status or honor, lacking family systems and, and cultural support. Also people imprisoned for debt. Now, our criminal justice system is different from that in the time of Jesus. So Jesus probably isn't speaking, and Isaiah probably wasn't speaking, of releasing violent criminals out onto the street. That wasn't the sense of prison here. This is likely debtor's prison. So think not of uh, murderers going free, but maybe student loan forgiveness. That's probably a more practical and exact match for what Jesus is talking about. Student loan forgiveness, I think, is a good example of what it could mean to free prisoners to debt. And this makes sense um, when we consider that these Isaiah quotations can invoke the year of Jubilee, which was all about debt forgiveness and financial restitution. So when you look at that list of, of people that Jesus came to serve and ways that Jesus came to bring holistic healing, where do you see yourself in that list? What are the pains and the problems in your life where you need Jesus' salvation to show up for you? 
And how can a more holistic view of salvation be good news for you tonight? As we look at Jesus's teaching and how his salvation is bigger for others, we have to remember that the poor can also mean those who are socially ostracized or not counted among God's people, those without social power and privilege. Why does Jesus illustrate in his teaching with stories of God's provision and healing to two Gentiles? He may be wanting to show that the poor includes outsiders and people marginalized for social or even medical reasons. When Jesus makes that shift from reading to teaching, he explains that his mission, like the mission of the prophets, he mentions Elijah and Elisha, it's for more than just Israel. Unclean Gentiles are going to be included. And that bit of knowledge seems to be the moment of shifting for the crowd as well. The people are pleased with him at first. They react with surprise, esteem, astonishment, admiration, amazement. Maybe this is because they're proud of their local boy or surprised at their young neighbor's skill or in amazement at his gracious words, but they don't really understand who he is or what he's doing. So then why do the people grow angry? They are filled with fury, rage, indignation, but why? Well, it seems to be because he's equating them with the people who persecuted the prophets. He's challenging their religious institutions and their religious traditions. He is siding with the marginalized. He's saying that the end is here and he's bringing the end. Um, he is expanding God's favor from Israel to the wider world. Those without a family are going to be invited into the family of God. If we have a view of scarce resources, what some people might call like a scarcity mindset. If we think there's a limit to the goodness of God, we might be tempted to hold onto it for ourselves and not want to share that. But one aspect of the expansiveness of God's salvation is that there is no end to it. There is no limit. Whoever wants it can have it. It's not something to hoard, but something to give away generously. I've, I wonder about this passage, whether any of their anger could be attributed to their wanting to keep the status quo of oppression or favoritism. Israel went back and forth between being a nation who was oppressed to being people who oppressed others within their borders. The Israelites of Jesus, they held so much contempt for Gentiles and other marginalized people. Elsa Thomas, a Latin American liberation theologian, writes that the rich oppress the poor in order to hoard wealth and power for themselves. And I wonder if there's some spiritual hoarding going on here as well. Do the Nazarenes oppose Jesus' mission so that they can hoard election privilege and access to God's power and salvation only for themselves? And I wonder if we do that ourselves, like we want to be saved and maybe there's people we think shouldn't be included in that. So as we move from the exegesis to the application, I wanna say again, this passage tells us the mission of Jesus and the salvation he offers and that it is bigger than we sometimes expect. It's bigger for us and it's bigger for others. When we interpret scripture, it's so important to ask first what the scripture meant to the first audience before we ask what it means for us today. For Jesus listeners, he was giving an invitation to receive his holistic healing and salvation for them to join his mission and bringing that to others and to embrace the expansiveness of God's kingdom, even when it encompassed people that they had rejected. For those then who first read Luke's gospel, which was written as God's kingdom was expanding around the known world, that invitation was the same. Follow Jesus. That's my microphone. 
follow Jesus and join his mission, which is making a family out of diverse people and meeting the needs of the poor in their midst. And for us then the same, how do we bring that into our world? We are invited to receive expansive salvation and then to help expand God's kingdom by caring for the poor, the sick, the disabled, people who are mentally ill, people who are oppressed by the abuses in this world. We can join Jesus' healing mission by doing the anti-racist work that Savior has embraced, by confronting our own internalized racial prejudices and to work for equity for everyone, as we did last year in the sermon series, um, confronting racism and the small groups that we had around that topic. We can join Jesus' mission by welcoming people with disabilities, people who need that physical healing from God and the welcome from a community rather than being ostracized with their challenges. As we looked at in the powerful sermon series that we had in the fall, Church of the Savior is known as being a safe place for people with disabilities. And this is one way that we live out God's salvation. We can join Jesus' mission by siding with abuse survivors as we are having to do and confront in our own denomination. I am so grateful for the work of advocates like the people volunteering in the ACNA 2 advocacy group, fighting for God's compassionate justice for precious people spiritually and sexually abused within our own churches. Jesus is on the side of the marginalized, not on the side of our religious institutions. And this passage that we've looked at tonight offers us two responses to that mission. Wonder or discomfort that can lead to anger. We can accept the salvation that Jesus offers us and others, or we can reject it. And I invite you to ask yourself, as I'm asking myself, do I get angry when Jesus offers salvation to people I don't think deserve it? And I, I think I do. This is uncomfortable for me to look at in myself. What about people who I would consider political opponents or people who hold different interpretations of the Bible than I do? People who sin differently than I do? People who've hurt me? Who do I think God should not save? I have to remember that salvation is for them as well if they want it. So I encourage you to open yourself to Jesus healing in the parts of your life that most need his holistic touch. And also be open to extending his salvation to others, even the people we most despise. My invitation to all of us tonight is to walk into the TARDIS, metaphorically, to walk into Jesus salvation with a sense of wonder that Jesus' mission and message, his gift of salvation, is so much bigger on the inside. Amen.